Welcome. Hi, I'm Katie Morrell. I'm a creative and writer based in Bend, Oregon. And I'm Karen Hawkins. I am the founder of Rebellious Magazine for Women and co-publisher and co-editor-in-chief of the Chicago Reader. You are listening to Of Course I'm Not Okay, the podcast. Join us as we talk about mental health, coping with quarantine, and creativity. For some of our episodes, we'll talk with writers, creatives, and activists to get their take. Thank you for joining us on this journey. Hello, Karen. It's wonderful to see you on this, the around one year anniversary of the beginning of COVID. Katie, it is always wonderful to see you. I'm trying not to be bummed out. Me too. (laughs) Trying and failing. You're failing, you said? Yep, failing, failing. I am failing. I feel like this is just, there's no way around talking about this. Like this is... I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, and I, I feel like it, it is about to, if it is not already ubiquitous in your life, it is about to become ubiquitous in your life. Like everybody is doing these anniversary things. And I feel like we're not jumping on a bandwagon. We're pioneers because of our guest. I feel like we, we are having this conversation with our guests relatively early in this whole process. I totally agree. Listeners, keep your eyes peeled for our guest on the morning shows this week. Seriously, this week, uh, you will see her. um, And I'm glad we got her first. But Karen, do you want to share how we happened upon this? I mean, this is so amazing. This is like the beauty of this podcast and like the people in our lives. I mean, Ginger Buddha is part of this. I'll just let you go ahead because seriously, this is amazing. Absolutely. So, uh, One of the things I value most in life, of course, is my relationship with my church ladies. It's not a religious church. You guys don't get excited about that. So I have this group of church ladies. um, I'm on a text thread with them. We're all just talking about how we're on the struggle bus and Ginger Buddha uses the phrase pandemic PTSD. Hi, Ginger Buddha. And I was like, ooh, that is fucking real. And I Googled it. And as I say in the interview, I guess, you know, not happy with the results, but Googled pandemic grief and found this article by this woman in the Washington Post. I sent it to you, Katie. Um, and you took it and ran with it in the most amazing way. It was, I mean, you texted me, Tyler and I were going out to dinner. I think it was like Wednesday night. Today's today's Friday, listeners. So this is like less than 48 hours ago. Karen texts me, hey, I have a great idea for Friday. Let's talk about pandemic grief and the COVID anniversary. And I was like, oh shit, this is amazing. And then And then you texted me, this, this Washington Post piece, the author, her name is Hope Edelman, and she wrote, we will link this in the description of this podcast, listeners. I highly recommend reading this. I mean, yes, we talked to Hope for a full half hour, and it was incredible, um, but there's more in the piece, and also Hope's um, incredible body of work. But anyway, so I looked at this, and then I had this moment where I was like, I wonder if we could get Hope on the podcast. And then I clicked on, she's not, she's an outside contributor, so she's not a Washington Post um, staff writer. And so I was like, I wonder if she's on Instagram and within seriously, the beauty of social media, which is not always beautiful, but in this case was beautiful. I reached out to her. I sent her a direct message. She wrote me back seriously in two hours and bam, we got her on the pod. It was amazing. (sighs) I love it. And (laughs) I, I feel like it's one of those things too, where it's just like, our topics are both like 
for our listeners, right? We we have these topics for our listeners, but the the genesis of this podcast is the conversations that you and I were having, Katie, yes. right? And so I feel like, yes, it's for all of you listeners, but really it's for us. It's really it's, for us. It's we're, really. we're bringing people on to be our, you know, stand-in therapists for 20 minutes. Yeah, correct. That is exactly right. So <laughs> I feel like, yeah, I, I, I knew I needed to talk to her, but I feel like after our conversation, it was like, ooh, yeah, no, I really needed to talk to her. Totally. And not just that. I mean, I feel like our conversation was so great with her and listeners, I'm so excited for you to listen to it, but I do actually think that we scratched the surface. I actually really do genuinely want to look into the rest of her work and like read other articles she's done and the books she's written. Like she is, I mean, wow, like a full on expert on grief. And it's just so interesting to me because I feel like the topic of grief is actually something I know you and I have talked about putting on the pod as like a full on topic for one, you know, one week. And we haven't really touched it because, and I don't, I don't want to speak for you, but I feel like at least in my experience, like grief is, it's, I mean, I need someone who knows what they're talking about to talk about grief. I think that's what it is, but also it's culturally not like a very acceptable topic, which is so incredibly tragic to me because it's something that everyone experiences at one point in their lives. Absolutely. I, I agree with you. I do think it's one of the ones, it's also on my list of ones that I feel like, oh, we need somebody to facilitate that conversation. Like us two yahoos, like we can talk about it, but we really need, you know, totally. expert. And I also feel like, you know, this is one of the things that I think that Hope talks about is you can't grieve until you feel safe to grieve. And like, I mean, I'm not, I don't feel safe grieving. Like you can't, I just feel like, right. We can't begin to grieve this last year because it ain't over. And I, I feel like I don't even want to rip that bandaid off like of past grief. Like, no, thank you. Totally. This is, these are very uncomfortable feelings. I mean, this is like, this is not like a fun, like, yay, I'm going to schedule my grief for 2 PM on Tuesday. Like, no, like this is, not, this is not, this is not something that we're like, we're so excited about this. I mean, yeah. I will tell you that when, I mean, in my experience, when I moved to Bend, it was the weirdest experience because I went through really low times. Like in the very beginning, I would say the first two and a half to three months of moving here, I went through such a down spiral really is how it felt. Um, but what's interesting is something my therapist has pointed out and something a couple other people who have gone through a lot of grief have pointed out is that it was safe. Like I am in a safe place. Like I am in, I'm very lucky to be in a safe place, but it was that safety that allowed my body to relax enough to be like, Hey, now we're going to deal with some shit. And so it's like, but like, it's just interesting because that's just in general, that doesn't even have to do with the pandemic. Like that's just shit. That's like, you know, come up from a long time ago. But I think that what hope said about like, you need to be safe enough to grieve and you cannot the part where she, when she said, you can't grieve when you're in survival mode. Ooh. Yeah. 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 That hit me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think that's the other thing about having a conversation about grief is that we were fortunately able to have like a relatively intellectual conversation about grief, but really talking about grief is upsetting. 
upsetting. Just not, not just uncomfortable, but like, I don't think anybody wants to hear us sobbing on this podcast. So I feel like, you know, that's another reason this topic has been like something that we, I feel like have touched the edges of, but we're not jumping right in. Oh, totally. We, like, we completely needed someone to kind of moderate this conversation who is like, who can keep it on an intellectual level and doesn't trigger us personally. And then we're not like, oh God. And then we need to pause and that none of that happened. Listeners, don't worry. There's no tears. Like we're talking about this from a high level, but I do think that it touches. I, I love also what Hope said in terms of like, grief is not only the people who lost actual humans in their life to COVID. It's the loss of a lifestyle. It's the loss of so many things. And you know, actually Tyler and I went out for coffee this morning and we were driving home and we just had this like kind of rant I don't want to say rambling conversation, but just like, like a musing conversation where I was like, how do you feel about someday going back to like a fancy restaurant to like have dinner? And, and I was like, I actually don't know how I feel about it. And he, he was like, I think that, I mean, first off, I'm not really, he's not, he and I, neither of us are like that excited about spending a bunch of money on food to be inside with strangers. But at the same time, he's like, when it is safe to do so, it might feel a little bit like PTSD. Like it might feel very odd. And he's like, I don't really think I've experienced that feeling yet because we're still in it. And it's, I don't know, it just, and that's just, that's like the most benign example of like experiencing some sort of trauma over like not going to a nice restaurant, but like, like extrapolate that over like, times a million and I feel like a lot of us can at least everyone's way of life has changed and like I really think Karen that this is trauma like this is that's what this is there's no question that it's trauma absolutely and I think we will spend the next however many years unpacking all of the trauma of it and I mean exactly the way like I'm just thinking through the way you just put that like sitting in a crowded room with strangers eating food that's enough. Just right now just feels like the most absurdly dangerous thing in the world but it is something I used to do all the time oh yeah it's like a lot of people's biggest hobbies they're their most enjoyable thing like I remember there are certain people in my life that I would go out to dinner with them and that would be the time where I would feel like we have the best connection because there's, there are, even though there's like a buzz, it's kind of like a fun, like, you know, buzz in the background where you know, there's people. And so you feel connected, but at the same time, like you're not looking at your phones, like you're just looking at each other and friends or family, whatever. And now that's not there. And it's, that is odd. Like, and it's it's to think that we're going to somehow feel okay with that at some point, or at least I don't know if I will feel okay with it. Only speaking for myself, the same goes for like going in big crowds to go to concerts or even small crowds. Totally. Well, and we've talked about this a little bit, but there's also this like element of social awkwardness that I think we're all going to have to get over. Like every interaction right now, I know we've talked about this, but every interaction right now is so intentional. So transactional. I am in this store to do this thing. I am here to do this thing. We're not making small talk. We're not chit-chatting. I'm in and I'm out. And I feel like going back to this world where we're just like shooting the shit is going to feel really weird. I mean, I, a friend of mine emailed me the other day. She's like, my social skills have atrophied. And I was like, oh, a hundred percent. Like, I don't even know. I know we've talked about this, but I don't know what to talk about with people when I don't have an agenda. (laughs) 
right? When you don't have a hard stop at a certain time, you guys have a hard stop. So, (laughs) right. I got to log off. Oh my gosh. And also I think that this topic is so resonant with me because when you texted me on Wednesday, I will tell you, Karen, that Tuesday was rough, like rough with a capital R. And it was one of those things where it was one of those days that we've talked about where like, I worked some, like I worked almost a full day and then my body shut down and I was like, oh, this is a no. Like I feel this, it was almost like I couldn't put words to it. Like I couldn't articulate, like it was a very significant amount of anxiety and it was a very significant amount of sadness. But something that I posted on my Instagram was that it, and I decided to make it public because I was like, fuck it. I am sick of just seeing everybody's 0.00001% highlight reel of their highlight reel of their life and feeling like crap. I'm just going to tell everybody that I'm in the shit. And so that's basically what I did. And I was like, I was like, most of the time when this happens and these feelings come up, I will exercise or I'll watch a funny video or I'll read something that is uplifting or I'll call a friend. And I didn't. I was totally silent. I took a bath and then I laid on my bed for like two and a half hours and I just cried. And it was like, I'm so sad, Karen, that I haven't seen my family in like 15, 16 months. I mean, it's, and it's like, I don't think I was allowing my, myself to really go there. Like, that's the thing. Like, I think, and that's something that I so resonate with what Hope said um, in her piece and also in our interview which was the body knows when it's a one year anniversary and also the mind knows. Um, and I don't think I was making that connection, but like I'm, I have been intentionally not allowing myself to go there specifically around not seeing my family. And it was just like, I'm just going to surrender to it. And it totally was awful. But at the same time, it's helpful to have this conversation about it because I know I'm not the only one. And like, I know you mentioned that you didn't have like the most stellar week either. No, I really, and I, I mean, I'm so grateful that we can talk to each other about these things. And I'm so grateful that we create this space for each other, but it always makes me so sad when you say you're having a rough time. I always have this initial reaction of like, no, I don't want you to have a rough time. I mean, I'm glad we're talking about it, but I don't want you to have a rough time. I know when you text me and you're like, I've been, I've been rough too. And I'm like, no, I want you to be happy. Exactly. I see you on top of a rainbow. <laughs> like, all the time. Exactly. <laughs> Precisely. It's how we roll. Totally. I mean, even though we have a podcast called, of course I'm not okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. We're just, we're usually on rainbows. At least in my mind, you are always. See, that's how I feel about you. Okay. Let's just roll with this. <laughs> yeah. I, I also had a hard time this week. I mean, and I, I think one of the things I, I'm glad that we got to talk to Hope about is like how grief manifests itself. And, you know, just so if you're listening and you're like, why was I laying on my bed for two and a half hours? Why was I, why can I not focus? Why am I so grouchy? Like, I feel like all of, all of those things. And, you know, I going to use this therapy expression that I hate and I, it's not my therapist will say it. The church ladies will say it and we're all just roll our eyes, but it's true that the only way out is through. Yes. And you surrendering to this grief that you haven't wanted to touch is like, you can't, you can like keep walking and circling it, but you at certain point, just, you just got to walk through it. it right. 
it's so true. It's like the energy will always be there until you actually face it. It's like, you know, you can, you can pretend it's not there for as long as your body allows you to. And then it's like, all right, I'm shutting this down. Like I need you to pay attention. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's like, and I, I just, you know, I love what you said about like the different way grief manifests. And I love what hope says in our interview, because it doesn't look like laying on a bed after a bath for two and a half hours for everyone at all, actually. Like listeners, you might be thinking like, what the hell? Like I haven't shed one tear about X, Y, and Z, or like I am doing this, this, and this compulsively. I mean, it's just, there's so many things. There's so many ways that different personalities like metabolize grief. And so, and I also don't think that there's um, a wrong or a right way. Like one of the, you know, questions that we didn't end up getting to um, that you came up with and I love is like, how can we be more compassionate with ourselves around the way that we're processing grief or dealing with this COVID anniversary versus judgment? And I feel like that's a huge one for so many people. Yeah, because I because it's something that makes us so uncomfortable, I feel like we push it away and we don't want to deal with it. And rather than being compassionate around somebody's grief and kind of like walking with them in it, we just kind of like want to, oh my God, are you still upset about that? Yeah. <laughs> just jump to this really cruel, callous place to protect ourselves. Um, and I just hope that we can recognize when we're doing that and be both compassionate to ourselves, yes, and to others. Totally. And it's also like something that Hope said when she was talking to us about the fact that in the US, bereavement leave is like three days max for so many people. So this is a cultural issue. Like this is like an internalized, like, you know, attack against ourselves, but it's also brought on by the culture. Like our, a lot of people don't even have three days. Like some people don't have any time at all to grieve whoever they're grieving or grieve whatever they're grieving. Oh my God. I, and I didn't want to, we, we, I'm so I'm, Glad that we had an abbreviated, a very focused conversation with her. But like, I feel like, yes, that the three days of bereavement leave is a whole episode for me. Like I, I lost a sibling in the most horrible, tragic way. And my workplace was like, oh, okay. We're going to send you some flowers to the funeral. We're going to send you some ribs to your house. I was a vegetarian at the time. And then we want you back here and we want you working and we want you to be perfect and nothing to be wrong. Oh like, gosh, and oh my God, aren't you done? Why aren't you done with that? And it was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, I, and my brain was still in shock. I feel like that's the other thing. It's just like, your body is not just, I feel like survival mode is like best, like this step after just blank shock. hundred percent. Right. And so I feel like, yeah, the American workplace leaves no room for any of that. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, no, no. We need you back at work. I need you to finish that. Where are the TPS reports? Right. What are you doing? Totally. I mean, I actually think that that would be a really, if we were willing to go there to talk to someone about like, I hate the buzzword or the buzz phrase future of work, but like, what the hell is happening Mm. right now? Because this is not okay. Like with your experience, I am so sorry. And I also am so sorry for so many people who experience that. And it's like, it's so interesting and profound what you say about like, there's the shock and then there's the survival mode after the shock which can last years, frankly. Oh my God, right. I mean, just the survival part. And it's like, right. this is the, the lack of empathy in the US workforce and the work, US mm-hmm. workplace 
doesn't actually compute to me because it's not a humane way of treating people like people like we're people like this is not we are not machines like that's actually something that my therapist has and I have been working on when it comes to days where I'm not feeling that great or you know productive in quotes hate the word um it's like no you're not actually a machine like and we're not machines and it's like when will it become okay to just be a human being at work and then be treated like a human being so I don't know if there's someone out there or if someone listening is like oh I know the perfect expert or someone who really specializes in humanity in the workplace we are open because I would be very happy to talk to that person I would love to talk to that person and it makes me what it makes me think of is you know I feel like we're recapping everything hope said but you should still listen to her you should you should absolutely keep listening. But one of the things she talks about is the gendered, the ways that the different genders across the gender spectrum process grief and the ways that we grieve and how that looks different. And it, what it makes me think is that we have calibrated grief in the workplace to like that 250 pound man that all workplace temperature is calibrated to. Like the same reason women are always fucking freezing in offices is the same reason we get three fucking days to grieve after losing somebody. And one stall in the bathroom. (laughs) (laughs) Swear to God. Never enough toilet paper. Why do we have to pay for tampons? What the fuck, man? Yeah, what the fuck? (laughs) So anyway, that's going to be something to look forward to, listeners, because we are definitely (laughs) going to explore this topic. Clearly, we have some feelings. Oh, my God. Yeah, but I do think that this conversation is so impactful and interesting and like really a starting point, I feel like with hope. Like, I think that I'm actually really excited to hear what she has to say on the morning shows that she's going to be on this week because she was mentioning that she's going to be on some morning shows. And also, um, yeah, her, her additional work around this topic is just, there's not enough talked about. Absolutely. And just really understanding grief makes it so much easier to deal with. Yes completely. All right, everybody, we are sending you all love in any feelings that you have. Enjoy Hope Edelman. All right, Hope Edelman, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. We are very excited to have you. And um, I will tell you, I was having a conversation with a group of friends over text, of course. And one of them said the phrase pandemic PTSD. And Mm -hmm. I Googled it and was not happy with what I got. And then Googled, (laughs) it's like, "Uh, this is not it. Then Googled pandemic grief and Mm -hmm. found your Mm op-ed in the Washington Post. And Mm I, as we were talking before, I sent it to Katie. I've sent it to probably 10 people at this point, a link to it um, because so many of us are deep in this. And so um, I just want to jump into it and just start talking a little bit about that piece. And you lay out, you know, the history of grief, the problem state of grief in the American culture, but then some solutions. And so can you talk a little bit about why this op-ed is so important and why it is resonating with so many of us right now? 
Well, I think partly because it's timely and I really appreciate the Washington Post publishing it now. It's funny because they first asked me for it in December, but it took a while for us to you know, get it moving for various reasons and the news cycle and the inauguration, but it's perfect timing now because we are right here at the one year anniversary of the big surge and first big surge of COVID deaths in the US and the lockdowns. I live in Los Angeles and it was right around now that we were locking down. And whenever there's a loss, um, typically, you know, when we lose someone to death, as so many have in the past year, but also any major loss, there's typically a dip at the one year point. The first anniversary um, is a time when we typically start feeling a little resurgence of grief or maybe start experiencing it for the first time if we couldn't process it in the year prior. And that's what happened to a lot of us during COVID. I mean, because we're not talking just about deaths to COVID, although clearly there have been so many and so many mourners left behind. About nine mourners for every person who dies is the average. That's from, an, uh, I believe it's a Pennsylvania state study that was done last year. But people lost jobs. They lost their um, financial security. Uh, kids lost, you know, in-class learning. So did teachers lose, you know, their their workspaces. People lost homes. Um, so there's there was a lot of loss that occurred. But we very much went on survival mode, didn't we? I mean, we just because everything was changing in real time, and it was like whiplash trying to pivot from one change to another to another. I mean, at this time last year, we were all afraid that we were going to get COVID from a package of frozen peas at Trader Joe's, right? <laughs> we didn't know anything compared to what we know now. There was no sense that there was an endpoint or a vaccine, or we were overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. So everyone was in survival mode, just trying to adjust. And you cannot grieve when you're in survival mode, really. You can only process the deep emotions of grief when you feel safe enough to do so. And a lot of us didn't feel safe. So here we are at the one-year point, and now we've, we're hearing that all of us who want to be vaccinated can be, hopefully, by the summer, or the end of the summer, there's an end in sight. Things are starting to open up a little bit. People are feeling safer. And that's when we would expect people who didn't have an opportunity or permission or the space to grieve in the past year to start doing it. That's, Does that make sense? Absolutely. I so appreciate that explanation, Hope. And I, I also really appreciate what you said just now, but also what you said in your piece about grief. It's, it's not just the people who have lost someone physically in their lives. It's the grief of not being able to gather with our loved ones, not being able to, for kids not to be able to see their friends in school and kind of this, this grief over the lost way of life. I mean, it really seems, um, it seems like you're really piped into this community and this conversation. And I'm wondering, yeah. Can I ask, since you've been doing this for so long, can I ask, what are you seeing that might, is there a difference in what's happening right now, what you're seeing with these COVID anniversary, um, mm -hmm. with this COVID anniversary, in the way people are processing grief or struggling with grief that might be different than anything you've seen before, or is there a difference? Oh, that's such a good question. And I can answer it in several different ways. But first of all, a, a lot of us have experienced a pileup of losses. And in addition to maybe not feeling safe to grieve, some people have experienced bereavement overload. That's what it's called. 
when you have several losses all at once and you just feel completely overwhelmed and don't know where to start with your bereavement or, or your grief response because you're, you're grieving several things at once. I mean, we all lost a way of life, all of us in this country and worldwide. And we don't know how much of it's going to come back. We're being told that we may never go back to what we considered to be normal. And so, you know, we're trying to process that in our minds and our emotions and our spirits. So there's that. What's different also now is that we couldn't grieve losses in the way that we understood or were familiar with the comforting familiar rituals that we depended on and maybe anticipated would be there always if a loved one died, like gathering for a funeral or certain religious or ethnic practices that required people coming together in person. Um, I'm Jewish, and so we would have a seven-day period after someone dies called a shiva, where people come over to the house, and you can only say the prayer for the dead if they're, depending on how religious you are, there are 10 men in attendance. We won't go there with that one right now, <laughs> right now, but um, they have to be physically present, you know, and so I don't know, actually, if people are able to do that by Zoom. Maybe they are. It's a poor substitute. Uh, I'm glad we have it. At least, you know, we have it <laughs> to, to communicate with each other. But um, we can't gather in person. So funerals are small and sparsely attended. Memorial services are happening virtually. You know, people click leave meeting and then they're alone in their homes. And, and, and a lot of rituals and traditions are being abandoned. And so I've been interviewed several times about, well, what can we do about this? Um, my, I'm saying we need to have these memorial services in person when it's safe to do so, even if it's two years later. The village will wait to mourn the passing of one of its own. It's really important that we come together. My fervent hope, however, is that moving forward, we will continue gathering in person to mourn our dead. I think it's essential to have that human touch and that human contact for the mourners, but that we will have a hybrid where those who can't attend in person because they can't travel on short notice, they can't leave their children, they can't leave their jobs, can still be there by Zoom or live stream so that the entire village can come together, which is how we used to mourn our dead. Before the 20th century, it was a very social experience. You know, people gathered together to, um, to support the mourners in a very large way. And um, mourning periods were quite elaborate. And, and lamentations were, were public. And interestingly enough, all of that disappeared at the beginning of the 20th century with the, with the two punch of World War I and unbelievably the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918-19. The history is extraordinary. If you go down that rabbit hole and see how similar what we're experiencing today is to what we experienced almost exactly 100 years ago. Oh, it's just, it gives me goosebumps. Thank you so much for that history because I think it helps people, obviously it helps put things in perspective. And I think one of the things that was so helpful for me about your piece and why I've shared it so many times is that you're naming and putting into words this unnameable thing for all of us that we're all carrying around and having someone name it just gives it some shape and just doesn't, it, right. it makes it feel less heavy. Well, I have a number of friends right now, in fact, this week, who are saying, I feel so sad. I feel so depressed. I don't know what it is. And I say, you know, let's consider that it might be 
postponed grief or resurgent grief, which is what it's called, which would come at the one year anniversary, especially here in LA, because um, like I said, you know, they may not have been able to grieve in the past, but also depression and grief look really similar. And one of the other very influential moments in the history of grief theory came in 1917, when Sigmund Freud published a paper called Mourning and Melancholia. And his objective was to teach people about the difference between depression and grief, because they were so often confused and they looked so similar. And he wrote a paper about it. And in that paper, he proposed that healthy mourning requires us to detach our emotions or our psychic energy, as he called it, from the, our loved ones after they die, take it back to ourselves and wait a while before we attach it to somebody else. And he, he, he described mourning as a very sequential linear process based on his observations with his psychoanalytic patients. And that idea took off like wildfire and ultimately led us to what became the five stages of grief with a couple of really important stops in between. So this is like the fast forward version I'm giving you. But once we started thinking of grieving and mourning as an interior individual process that happens in, you know, in a set of steps, it was only logical that we wound up later on with the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance, which were never meant to be applied to grief in the beginning. They were meant for those who were terminally ill coming to terms with the end of their own lives. But nonetheless, um, it's a very, it was a very seductive idea. And so that also happened right around the time of World War I and the flu pandemic. So that was very much a part of how mourning practices in the Western world began to change and left us with what we have today, which is a very scaled down version of what we used to have a hundred years ago. Now we have the funeral and the memorial service and then everyone goes back to work. We get three days off as the average American bereavement leave. Incredible, isn't it? Three days of paid bereavement leave is the average. It's so sad to me that that has been the progression hope of, of mm -hmm. what you know, that it seems so incredibly humane what was happening before the onset of the Spanish flu in 1918, and now how we've changed through World War One, World War Two, and all of that. And I have, mm -hmm. I have so many comments and I have questions about, um, you know, about the idea of grieving. I love what you said earlier about how it's really important, even if it's two years later, to gather as, a, you know, in person when it's safe to do so and grieve the person who is lost from the village. I have a question though about people who potentially haven't lost someone, but they've lost another thing in their life. So for example, or many things, um, they've lost a job, they've lost a way of life, they've lost, uh, you know, or things have drastically changed. Um, I think in my own life, uh, I have moved states and it's entirely 100% because of COVID. Um, I have lost a job because of COVID. Like, I, and I'm not trying to just put the sympathy on me. This is just my experience. But it's interesting that you say the one year anniversary mark, um, because on Tuesday I had a very low mental health day. And I know that when I think back into the times in my life where I was going through grief, specifically mm -hmm. around the most primary person in my life who died a few years ago was my grandmother. The one year anniversary was extraordinarily difficult. Mm -hmm. um, and I understood it at that time, but I guess 
my, I'm kind of jumping around here, but I guess my question is, do you have any advice for people who, once we are able to gather in person, how can they mourn, maybe not the loss of a life, but the loss of something else that might not be as tangible? Well, you know, I think first it's important to recognize that what you're feeling at that time might be grief. We have like an internal calendar, I believe. We are sentient beings, like we're responding to the change in temperature, you know, or the change in the, you know, the, the slant of the sun. I mean, we're probably, you know, flowers come into bloom. You know, for a long time, the smell of freshly cut grass would give me a grief response because the morning um, after my mother died in the hospital, I walked outside and the sun was coming up and the grass was being mowed in the, near the parking lot at the hospital. And that acrid smell of freshly cut grass would make me cry for years. Um, so, you know, let's, we need to be aware first that what we're experiencing might be grief. We need to be kind and gentle with ourselves. I think we need to give each other permission and space to grieve, to hold that space for another person, to find that your trusted confidant you know, who can hold that space for you so that you can express it and talk to them or to externalize it in other ways through art, through physical activity. Not everybody gets comfort from talking. Some people are real introverts and we need to honor that as well. But I do think it's important to externalize it in some way. Some people externalize it through talking. Some do it through creating or building models or using their bodies. But it, it, it really first is important to recognize that this lull that you're feeling that may you may call depression you know be, as a as a sort of a blanket term or you know a cat an overall umbrella phrase um, might in fact be grief might in fact be re-experiencing pieces of a loss that and it doesn't have to be at the exact year point you know it can come six months later whenever you feel safe enough but I think we need to educate ourselves become more literate as a culture about what grief is and go back to, you know, maybe not exactly what Freud said, but his objective, which was to distinguish between depression and grief. Sometimes they're the same. If you have a, a, pre, a predisposition to depression, you know, when you're grieving, you may encounter another clinical depression. But for many of us, what we're feeling is actually a grief response. We just don't know it because we don't talk enough about what that feels like. I love that you're articulating it that way. So thank you so much. And I guess my my other question is along that same line. So if if you can describe what other things, how how else grief manifests in our bodies? Like I think we have right. a very specific notion of it, right? And right. what are people feeling right now that they might be able to assign right. to grief? And thank you for asking that. I want to just first say that I I believe, and so do many others, that there are at least five components to grief. So let's talk about the intellectual, which is how we make sense of what happened and piece together a story that, you know, cause and effect so we can understand what just happened to us. There's also the emotional, which is what we think of first, typically when we think of grief, which is crying and lamentations and feeling despair and out of control. Um, but the crying, you know, the externalizing of it is a very feminine model of grief. Um, it doesn't apply to all members of our society. 49% um, might grieve in a ma more masculine style, or you know, we, we, it's believed that 85% of women grieve in a way like where they wanna talk about it and they're crying and you can physically see you know, what they're going through. The masculine form of grief, which applies to about 85% of, of men, 
um, because there's crossover, of course, um, or male identified, is uh, to um, work it through it internally, problem solving or through action, you know, like working on your car because you and your dad used to work on your car together. Men might work through their feelings about losing a dad by going outside and working on the car. And women don't recognize that in men and men think that women are being, you know, overreactive or should get over it by now because it's not how they grieve. And so there's a lot of miscommunication between the genders, but that's the emotional component. Um, there's also the social component, which is much of what we lost in the 20th century when we started thinking of grief as an internal process rather than one where we connect with each other and help each other through it. I'd like to see more of that coming back. There's the spiritual component, which often is lumped together just with religion. And that's part of it. You know, you may, there, you may have a religious belief system that helps you um, create a framework for understanding what happened that gives you comfort, the belief that you'll see your loved one again. But I also think of the spiritual component as a loss being a, a damage to the spirit, you know, and also raising existential questions. When we're talking about death, existential questions like, where did that person go? Will I see them again? That maybe if you don't have a religious tradition that answers those questions for you are you're trying to work out on your own. So that's the spiritual, but the fifth is physical. And now I'm getting to answer your question. Um, the physical component, the somatic component to grief, our bodies feel it, our bodies experience it. What does it feel like? Well, grief is really individual and it's different for everyone. I can tell you what it feels like for me. My stomach gets tight. I lose my appetite. I can't eat. I wake up um, at four or 5 a.m. with my heart racing, you know, just so sad. But that's what it feels like for me. It's not like that for everybody. Some people can't stop eating. You know, they, they have, it, that's how different in their appetite or they, they only want to sleep and they can't stop sleeping and they just want to be in bed. Um, but typically, typically, and, you know, and grief is also culturally relative, but most, you know, our bodies tend to process it the same way. Um, in most cultures, it is a feeling of loss of control, deep sorrow, helplessness, powerlessness, some despair. Um, there will typically be some form of sleep or appetite disturbances. Um, there may be um, an increased heart rate. Um, at the one year anniversary in particular or other anniversaries, and this is really important, mourners will often have physical symptoms that mimic those of the person who died. Yes, I know. There's a lot written on this in the psychoanalytic literature, and it's wild. But psychiatrists would see patients coming in, and they would have, let's say, headaches or chest pains that no, but no doctor could diagnose. You know, they would run a battery of tests, and there'd be no physical explanation for what they were experiencing. And then through the course of the of, of the therapy sessions, the psychiatrist would discover that at this time of year or at the same age that their client was, um, they had lost a loved one to a brain tumor, maybe if they had headaches or to sudden heart failure, if they were having chest pains. And once they were able to talk about that loss and their grief, the symptoms would resolve. Isn't that amazing? Wow. So the physical symptoms really can be almost anything. Oh my gosh. Hope, Amazing. thank you so much for talking to us today. I really feel like we could talk to you for like six more hours about this. Cause I think, <laughs> exactly. I, feel, I, I think the thing is, at least in my experience, hope, or uh, excuse me, grief is not 
discussed this much and so very much and so it's just it's so important but can I ask you before we let you go where can people find you where can they find your work and connect more with you to really learn more about what you do um well hopeedelman.com is um kind of a central point for my work my books on grief um I came to um came into this field writing about mother loss. So Motherless Daughters was my first book. And I'm very involved with that community and community building. So motherlessdaughters.com is where you can learn about retreats and workshops when they start up again. There are calls every Tuesday for Motherless Daughters where we talk about loss um, from the past and also more recent loss as well. There's going to be a big international virtual Mother's Day weekend event to honor mothers who are no longer living on the Saturday before Mother's Day. There's information about that there. Um, and then my new book, The Aftergrief, is at theaftergrief.com. And that is for anyone who's experienced a loss in the past. It is what loss looks like, the echo or ripple effects, 5, 10, 20, 30 years later. And it talks about how a major loss is something that we never get over, put down, leave behind. It's something we carry with us. So those three websites, but hopeedelman.com is probably the best place to find me and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, like everybody else, just with my name. Wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for existing so in the world. Yes. You're so welcome. Thank you so much, Hope. And I'm so excited to put this out into the world because I feel like this conversation and your work they can follow will help so many people. So thank you again. Have a great day. Thank you.